HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Hi, I'm Michael Harlan Turkel, your host. You are listening to The Food Scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.com. Today's episode is brought by Brooklyn Bowl, dubbed as Rolling Stone. Dubbed by Rolling Stone is one of the greatest places on earth. Brooklyn Bowl's timely blend of live music, food by Blue Ribbon, and of course, bowling is a perfect strike every time. Brooklyn Bowl features diverse live performances from Snoop Dogg to Dr. Dogg, The Roots to Gaslight Anthem. To the Disco Biscuits and so many more As well as the hottest in local up and coming talent Brooklyn Bowl is located at 61 Wythe Ave in Williamsburg, Brooklyn A short, short walk from the L or G subway They hope to see you at the lane soon Today I am very happy to have Melissa Clark New York Times food writer, cookbook author on the show um, Her work has this sensibility, this prose, this poetry, that even if you're not in the location, uh, traveling around the world, she brings international cuisine to your kitchen from her travels, from her experiences, and makes you feel, it, it is some kind of zeitgeist. It has this overall feeling that you've experienced it with her. And that's what we're going to talk about a little bit, about the difference with, between articles and reviews and how to stylize yourself as a writer, um, especially dealing with such uh, interesting egos as chefs in collaborating <laughs> with cookbooks. Thank you for being on the show, Melissa. Oh, thank you so much. So, um, actually, you have a book coming out pretty soon, In the Kitchen with a Good Appetite? Yep. And that one, yeah, it's coming out in September. And um, that one is based on the New York Times column. So it's, it's a book. It's all my recipes. It's not chef's recipes for this one. And it's... Um, the, the idea of the column is how does a cook think? You know, when you're in the kitchen and you, you're looking in your fridge or you're in the supermarket and you're like, what do I want to eat? And then you'd say, okay, I want, I'm in the mood for 
whatever. I'm in the mood for like shrimp. And then how you start that starting point gets you to the final dish. Like what's the story behind that? So it's kind of like not based on the TV show Chop, but in a similar vein that you have these ingredients yeah. in front of you and you just have so many, you know, different routes that you can take and how to actually start traveling those exactly well and except that it should start from your hunger you know so you know it's like what do i want to eat and i think that's the biggest question for me every time i start cooking is what am i hungry for what do i feel like eating and getting in touch with first of all that and then going from there and like okay really really say i really want shrimp and i look in the fridge i'm like okay well tofu all right so how do i how do i make it taste sort of shrimpy or how do i satisfy that urge so so are you taking elements and ingredients first rather than experiences trying to figure out your you know how to feed your hunger? Well, that's a really good question because sometimes, you know, hunger comes from not just a physical sensation, but sometimes it's you're hungering for an experience that you've had before, right? Like a memory will bring you, it will make you hungry. Um, So I can be thinking about, oh God, this amazing sandwich that I used to eat when I was a little kid that my mother made me. And I'll think, oh, I want that. Well, what is that and sandwich? That she used I want to, to make. Now. She used to make these panbanyats, and it's basically a glorified tuna sandwich. But instead of mayonnaise, it was with olive oil and chopped olives and capers and garlic and mustard, and it was just a really See, rich, savory you thing. You ate much better as a child than I did. <laughs> I was really lucky, actually. My parents are foodies, so I was really lucky. And so I could be thinking about that, and I could just be remembering, you know, we used to eat it on vacation, and it, it always reminds me of the beach. So I could be thinking about the beach, and then all of a sudden I'll, I'll think, oh, that sandwich, and it isn't even that I wanted necessarily to eat a tuna sandwich, but I just wanted to be at the beach. But then I get hungry for a tuna sandwich because I want to be at the beach. Yeah. Do you know what I so mean? So it's all these yeah. stimuli, you know, from the weather to, you know, the fresh produce. That- right. Exactly. Or I could just be looking at a turnip, like a beautiful bunch of those, you know, those little Japanese turnips? Oh, yeah. Far- oh. Little Haruki's. <laughs> yes, yeah. those. And I could just be looking at those thinking, I want to eat. Those are so good. I want to eat them raw, but really that's not a bunch of raw turnips isn't dinner so how do I make them into dinner yeah. and so it totally depends actually that was funny you just had an article about roasted radishes which I thought was right. very interesting what was the impetus for that piece that one I feel like they're really trendy now have you been I feel like I've seen them everywhere well, I, I don't know if I consider myself ahead of the curve but I love radishes and have always been eating them dealing with okay them so years. you're not yeah. so, so you've probably made roasted radishes before yeah, right? yeah, yeah. yeah see so they're for me they were new I just started seeing them in restaurants and I um and you know places near my house had them and you know like little takeout shops would start having them and I saw them in cookbooks and online and magazines and I thought well I've never roasted a radish before. <laughs> and it just never occurred to me because to me, radishes were, you know, I did one thing with them. I ate them raw. Oh, yeah. In just salad. Like, right. My, my favorite thing to eat actually is little radish toast, um, fresh French bread, uh, sliced thin radishes. But I make a compound butter with lavender and it just like <gasps> perfumes, brings out <gasps> little sea so salt. And that's it. Sometimes maybe some fleur vert, goat cheese and like really perfectly spring timey. But it was actually a... Uh, um, a very specific radish that brought me into the love of all things radish. It's this Japanese one called aburigako, which is, I call it the andouille of radishes. Um, <laughs> is it sort of... Well, it's smoked. Uh, they take it after Sakura Matsuri, the cherry festival, uh-huh, um, uh-huh. string it up in little huts, and I think smoke it with cedarwood for about eight days behind their houses. And, oh, my God. Yeah. and That's I, crazy. Exactly. I've never heard of no, that no, before. I, I'm one for, like, I love the history and etymology yeah. of things. So to hear about that and then taste it and it be all that and more, yeah. you know, encompass everything, you know, in, encompass the time and place and yeah. compass history it just yeah it was quite and so a what did you see so where do you even find those and then when you find them what do you do with that i think they 
Akita Prefecture of Japan. So okay, <laughs> okay so I'm not going to be able to. Yeah, go yeah, yeah. But I mean, you can create your own little hut in the backyard and try to replicate that thing. But I yes, mean, I'm really going to be doing that. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, turn the Sukkot into you know an Aburi Gakko hut. You know, <laughs> so maybe that would work. But yeah, it, it's a, these experiences which I see in your work so much. Um, recent ones like a Caesar salad or a tiramisu or the beef stir fry. I mean, they're not just based in singular entities. They're based in experience. And what are some of your favorite, you know, simple American dishes that have tons of legacy and lore and understanding behind them? You know, it's, it's funny that you um, mentioned American food because I'm thinking right now about cherry pie because yeah. I'm desperate for cherry pie. And oh, as am I. I I'm like, call, I'm hawking all of the farmers at the farmer's market. When are the sour cherries going to be in? When are this? And they're looking at me like, July, lady, cool your heels, yeah. you know? But um, so cherry pie is one of the first things I think of. And, you know, for some reason, I mean, obviously it comes into season, cherries come into season in, around 4th of July. So to me, it is my sort of quintessential 4th of July American dessert, even though, you know, historically, except for George Washington, you know, chopping down that cherry tree, which obviously never happened. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you know, there's no real link but it yeah. just feels like because it's so seasonal and it just comes around. It just to me feels very patriotic. Have you ever been to Michigan? You know, I, I have. I have never. It's, it's upper. It's upper, right? It's an yeah, upper yeah. peninsula I mean, where they have all the. It's a UP I, thing. No, actually, Traverse City has a huge one. My girlfriend um, was born and raised in Michigan. Her family's still there, and we usually go to Traverse City. And last year we went for July Fourth, which uh, was a cherry festival. Everything cherry, and you do not get sick of them. Oh I my mean, God! I'll bet. And do, do they do sour ones there too? Oh or is yeah, it yeah. I mean, it's the whole spectrum right. from. Uh, how do you say it? Monter, Monternay to Balaton to I mean the varietals are amazing. And yeah, I mean it's a cherry capital. It's the asparagus capital. It's uh, I think possibly the Morel capital of the country too. And these things are just plush and beautiful there. And it just yeah. So right, talk about American food exactly. Yeah. You know it's funny because Morels are obviously they're such an American ingredient. Yeah, and um, I didn't you know I. Um, because just because we have them, you know, I mean, they have them in different parts of the world too. But to me, we have such good ones here, yeah. you know, and um, I never, I had always mostly when I first had morels, you know, they're always dried, you know, because we didn't even, you know, we were importing them from France, I guess, you know, so we didn't even know we had these amazing morels. I mean, I guess in big cities, I guess if you live near a forest and you knew they were there, but it didn't become a thing until like the eighties. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I think. And, um, you know, I, and to, I just feel like, um, even now, people don't even know that there are these amazing morels just all over the country. And, um, and asparagus also. It's another thing. It's like we would import our asparagus from Europe. Exactly. You know? You know, <laughs> it's, it's just crazy. It's and now, funny that like all this French technique came yeah. over and so did French product. And we didn't realize that we had it here. Well, right. And, and once like the American food movement started catching up and understanding that, you know, we have our own technique and our own fruits, vegetables, produce. Yeah. And that, in fact, and I mean, this was so long before it was all about local, you know, yeah, I yeah. Mean, it was just like, and I remember, I remember this because it was, you know, this was, I remember this was like, I guess it was the early nineties when I, I met Larry Forgione, you know, who's like, you know, he's a big like figure in Alice, Traverse City. Right, like, American Spoon, yeah, I think is located is, in Petoskey, Michigan, which is right yeah. there. Right. Yeah. And, um, and so Larry Forgione, you know, and he, he, you know, his name doesn't get you don't hear as much about him as you do about Alice Waters, but you know, really they work together to try to put American food on the map and to try to get us to appreciate all these ingredients. And I really think that they were the, I mean, of course, Alice, we all know it's the beginning of the locavore movement, but Larry too, you know, and I feel like he doesn't get as yeah, much credit. I, it, that's what happens every once in a while. I think in middle America is that, you know, the media blitz on some coastal venues yeah. from San Francisco, LA, New York, well now Chicago, but places like Michigan didn't necessarily get it, even though they were, 
larger part of agribusiness in the country. I mean, not just through subsidies, but through the amount that they farm and intake. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, I think it actually like took a while for people to understand that local in the United States wasn't just within the 100-mile radius. It was going to Cleveland or going to Topeka right. and seeing what's genuine in that area. Right, and, and, and appreciating it. And I, it's true. I mean, it was all about the coasts. But. Definitely. Um, I actually wanted to talk a little about, about your cookbooks because you have all this personal experience mm-hmm. and then you collaborate with a lot of chefs like you did Daniel Baloud's Braise, Chef Interrupted, uh, been working with the Dean Brothers, even older books like Wally Maloof's High Heat, which I love, mm-hmm. and uh, Sylvia's Soul Food. Um, and, yep, David Boulay. David, yeah, David Boulay. Um, Bo Yosef's most recent. I mean, the, the list just goes on and on and it's almost, what, 20 books? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> How do you, well, I wouldn't say compromise, but how do you incorporate or amalgamate your style, your vision, mm-hmm. writing for these chefs? Oh, I don't. I mean, my vision just goes out the window. <laughs> yeah. You know, which is hard sometimes because, um, you know, it's funny, I've changed. You know, I've been doing these chefs books for a really long time. And at the beginning, every time I worked with a new chef, I learned an entire new way to do everything from chop an onion to sear a steak to when you add the salt. to, And it was this whole new, you know, um, just what technique set of techniques every single time every single chef and as I moved from chef to chef I was like oh but I Waldi Malouf would do it this way but oh David Boulay does it this way and then I would change I'd be like oh okay well that way is no good anymore I like to do it and so I would you know it was almost like I didn't I never I took it in as just so far as I was working with the chef and then for this was the beginning and then all of a sudden it occurred to me or maybe not all of a sudden maybe slowly I realized okay well I actually have a lot of knowledge at my fingertips and I can oh yeah you've been staging with the best yeah Yeah. and I've like learned all of their techniques and now I can pick and choose it is like staging it's like you know that's why restaurant chefs are so good at what they do because they work with so many different people and they take in these techniques and then they they know exactly when to apply it like now I know there's sometimes you need to salt right at the beginning and sometimes you need to salt right at the end and I can really make that call and and there's no way to say you know it's so much of it is feel it's not like I can explain yeah. to you why Do you have I'm an doing example it. or instance of when to salt before when to well salt yeah so I remember when Judy Rogers Zuni cafe cookbook came out remember yeah, that and yeah. she salts everything like she takes her chicken <laughs> she gets her chicken home from the supermarket or well she probably doesn't not the supermarket excuse me Judy Rogers yeah, yeah. she gets her chicken in from the farmer's market the she, super space market exactly yeah. from the farmer down the road who's you know growing it for her and um she salts it immediately and doesn't matter if she plans to cook it that day the next day or the day after she is salting that chicken the second she gets it home same thing with meat same thing with fish and um and i've made so many recipes from her book and they're great they totally work but then there is then i just made this recipe a couple of days ago for marcus samuelson's um pretty recent cookbook um the new american uh, yeah or the soul of what is it called yes. not no the soul the, the i guess it was his other one the soul it, it's his ethiopian um, african pan-african oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. and i made this dish and he salts it right at the end and as I was tasting the sauce, you know, it was such a different experience for me because I, I usually salt at the beginning. And I was it was this chicken dish, this very famous Ethiopian chicken dish um, and um, called Dora Wet or Dora Wat, something like that. Yeah. And the fla- to me, um, it, I could taste the spices in two completely different ways from the beginning without the salt and to the end when I added the salt. And I feel like I... Not to say that it would have, um, I would have changed the amount of salt or the way I used the salt, but it gave me an appreciation of the balance of the spices in a different way. So I knew that I needed to add more clove, and I don't know that I would have known that with, with a, a salt. salt. Yeah. yeah, I feel like it really it it focused 
my ability to taste. And so now I'm like, oh, well, maybe I shouldn't add the salt. So maybe I should only add the salt to early. This is a theory that I'm working on. Early if something is very simple and plain and and you're showing off the ingredient, but if it's a more complex stew with layered flavors, maybe that's when you really do need to add the salt at the end. So I don't know, but I just, I love thinking about the stuff and I feel like I'm going to keep changing. Every time I work with someone, I'm going to keep changing and and evolving my own style. Exactly. It's it's almost uh, too hard to know so much and you know, have all these techniques under your belt to actually make a simple decision. Yeah, I can't. Yeah. It's all complicated. And, but it's great. And at the same time, so then I'll probably write about it, you know, write a column of like, well, when do you, you know, when do you salt? And then other people will write in. And I just love the discussion. See, we're going to take a break right now and come back and talk about the differences between simple techniques such as salting before, after. And uh, yeah, we'll see you soon. This is Michael Harlan Turkel. You're listening to the Food Scene on Heritage Radio Network. I have Melissa Clark, a food writer for the New York Times, a good appetite, cookbook author here. And we were just talking about something as simple as salt before, after, when I actually apply it to dishes. And sometimes it's those simple techniques with, you know, having gone through the age of molecular gastronomy and, you know, uh, sous vide that... We forget sometimes it's liberally applying something that simple that makes the difference in the dish. And do you have any other techniques or, you know, when to add pepper or when to, you know, apply heat or when to brine things that at first was the, you know, norm for years, but now... Oh, yeah, I do, actually. Onions. Okay, so for years when I was sautéing onions, I always thought you needed to not let them turn brown, right? Unless you were making caramelized onions. But if you're just, say, you're making a stew and you, you... I, I guess I picked this up from reading so many cookbooks, you know, and the garlic, too. Do not let the garlic and onions get brown. I heard that in my head. I read that over and over. And um, you know what? It, it's totally different flavor profile if you let them get brown, but yeah. it's really good. Yeah, and, yeah. <laughs> and so, and then um, I learned from this other chef I worked with, I did several books with Peter Burley, who's fabulous. Yeah, and flexitarian? He's the, yeah. I didn't do the flexitarian, yeah. actually. My friend did that one, but um, I did two, the modern vegetarian and yeah. um, fresh food fast. Yeah. And Peter was, um, we were talking about making... Uh, caramelized onions and he said well what about browned onions and what you do is you put the onion in the pan without any oil at all and you get them black totally black yeah and i thought oh that's going to be disgusting and it was so good it was so if you've ever had um i think it's um certain middle eastern um fried onion preparations where it's like really crunchy and really dark oh, yeah. that's how they make yeah, it and like mujahara yes yeah. and i had just learned that so um i totally changed the way i think about onions and now i know that if i want a really deep rich super smoky flavor i don't use oil i put them in the pan dry i let them get super brown and then i add my fat interesting actually i was and just if you want sweet then you start with the fat yeah. 
It was interesting. I was just at a meal out in San Francisco at an Encanto restaurant. Chef uh, Chris Cosentino does this head to tail dinner oh. every year, which is just amazing, e- right? Epic, yeah. epic. I've been going for years, but this year, uh, a phenomenal little thing was um, onion ash. And it was burnt onions with, I think, nigella, which um, is... Uh, uh, right, the onion seed. Yeah, yeah, Black just crushed seed. up and yeah. dusted on the side of a plate of, um, I forget what kind of organ meat it was, but with Fra Diavolo. Uh-huh. And, you know, you hear ash. You hear yeah. ash and maybe, you know, you put on the outside of a cheese for it to age, but to put something burnt on the dish seems so odd, but it was absolutely awesome how it balanced out the spiciness and heat of, uh, you know, the Fra Diavolo That's without having really, to yeah. grill the, you know heart and stuff that much it was just absolutely fantastic okay that's brilliant that's okay i'm going to try that now how can yeah. you make ash at home i wonder if i just keep cooking it i guess it'll I think you just ash. keep cooking or you dry <laughs> and dehydrate or the oven and just pulverize and just use it as you know its own spice i mean yeah, it, yeah. i love that it, it was pretty awesome it puts the grill without having to actually have the fire in and, there and nigella is something i just i've just i went i'm going through a big nigella phase yeah I, i've used it in the past oh, yeah the other day, I just I had spring onions, you know, beautiful fresh spring onions from the farmer's market, and I thought, let's add another onion component. So I added angela. Oh, yeah, I can't. The, the flavor is so complex. It's in my it's, bread blend now. That caraway seed and yes, fennel is uh, just, yeah, absolutely to die for. Um, so I showed Melissa um, an old article of hers, I think from 2003. Um, sounds about right. About the far out <laughs> foods of Brooklyn, and I just can't. I don't care if there's not a segue. I just can't not mention this at the moment because it was just so interesting to see her pull out 10 dishes that were not only pushing the culinary envelope, but kind of defining the borough. And, you know, it being seven, eight years later, um, how those things have shifted. She had things like cow's foot soup at a Cox Bajan Bakery on Notre Dame, Vietnamese noodle shop with beef tendon, um, Mm -hmm. braised duck feet at Ocean Palace, Chicken and corn fungus sauce at uh, Bonita. The spleen sandwich at Fernando's Focaccia, which I love. Uh, which love. I absolutely love. With um, the ricotta? Oh, uh, yeah, yeah. I go there and for the chickpea panel, you know. Yeah. I'm, I'm completely fine. And, you know, a spleen, it's, it's not the most flavorful thing in the world, but it just with all that other, it just works. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> with the ricotta and, the, and the, the, the chewy texture. I actually wrote a little something for Edible Brooklyn on her blog a while ago because I was not only fascinated by that sandwich, but to find out they've been there for over 100 oh, years. Oh, yeah. Um, that Vistetta, the spleen, mm-hmm. is actually one of the initial forms of mufaletta. Um, oh, is that right? Yeah, everyone knows mufaletta in you know Central Grocery in New Orleans. Yeah. This is big, big round sandwich with a whole bunch of meats. Well, the, you think of salumi, and yeah, that. yeah, you don't and think of all of yeah. the spreads. But yeah. in Palermo, the street food was actually these vistetas, these little snacky sandwiches, because mufaletta I think means like little sack or little ball, mm-hmm. um, and they were these bite-sized sandwiches, like at Ferdinino's, uh, right? Rather than these giant, immense, you know, like blue-collar lunch yeah. break, sit down and eat sandwiches. You grabbed them, you were on the go, and fascinated by the history of it. And I don't think people have highlighted, you know, how amazing Ferdinino's really is. I think it's 106, and Central Grocery is only 104. So. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So, <laughs> so they, have, they have the... They, they might have had their original mufalata. Um, That's awesome. Yeah, yeah. It, well, in the States, so there might be a little debate going there. Um, Lamb's Head, Three Ways at Chicken Bone Cafe. God, Chicken Bone Cafe. <laughs> <laughs> Those were the days. Yeah, and now Zach has an empire. I know. Uh, um, the Grilled Beef Heart at Coco Roco. Um, two extraordinary Sweden icy drinks at Younga Malaysian Cuisine, and then brain tripe and tongue tacos at Tacos Nuevo, Mexico. 
Um, that was a fun article. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Do you get to run around the borough like that I got anymore? to run around the borough. No, not anymore. I have a, I have a kid now. Yeah, so, yeah. You know, I can't be like, okay, Dahlia, we're going for spleen sandwiches. <laughs> She'd be like... Best baby food around the borough. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, I, I don't get to run around like that. And, but that was so fun because it was not just running around. It was, I was really looking for the, you know, these interesting things that I don't get to eat every day I mean how often do you get to you know say okay everybody let's go and you know try find goat head you know yeah well do you think any of these have become commonplace now um that's a good question are they I feel like the drinks you know those crazy drinks yeah with like I mean I feel like we're so used to bubble tea that yeah. that those you know drinks with different um uh all kind of, what is in those? Like the the uh, little tapioca pearls, those little and, tapioca, and then the basil the sprouted basil yeah, seeds, yeah. and the vermicelli, yeah. and the. I feel like we see those a lot more than we have. Yeah. Um, I don't know if any of the other ones have it's really been, become. I think the most uh, most of the rest of it is awful. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it's funny to yeah. mention Chris Cosentino in the same yeah, vein, yeah, yeah. but I mean. Do you see that coming more to the forefront? Is well, it, yeah, or of course. It, yeah. And they use the right, like use the whole animal. I mean, so we're seeing a lot more awful, which is great. I yeah. mean, because first of all, it's delicious. It's underappreciated. Unfortunately, now it's getting expensive. It <laughs> exactly. Be, you know, used to be able to buy that stuff really. Cheaply. I mean, it used to be called low cuts and guts because it just would drop on the floor and be swept away in right, the facility. And nobody so, wanted yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. And now, now that we're, but it's important to use the whole animal. It's important to appreciate the whole animal, and um, and so I used. While it's more expensive, it's more accessible. Well, accessible, not not really. It's more available. You see more, it yeah. more. Um, you know, like Testa, you know, you see that everywhere. Who's not making their own Testa these days? Yeah, I think actually here at Roberta's where we're taping, they make um, a couple different kinds of shakuri using different organ meats. Um, I can't remember exactly. Maybe there was like a, a tongue dish recently. On. Yeah, tongue. Uh, Everybody's making a tongue terrine. And why not? It's yummy. It's so tasty. And, and again, we should be using... Tasty and tasty anyway. Yeah. Uh, we should be using the whole animal. So with so. those uh, same applications using, you know, offal, et cetera, what are the dishes these days that are defining Brooklyn? Okay. Oh, do you want the awful <laughs> dishes? Oh, I thought- no, no, not just awful. Just, you know, that they're taking something what was extraordinarily out there then to uh-huh. make it extraordinarily commonplace now. Right. What do you think are the dishes that are, you know, not common today that are going to be more common 10 years oh, from okay, now? Okay, I see. Um, well, definitely, I think we're going to continue in that vein. We're going to see more, um, more home made salumi i think that's just yeah. going to continue now that people you know are are um interested in crafting everything you know i feel like people want to make everything they serve in their restaurants by themselves and i think that's fantastic i think we're going to see th- people even making their own condiments that you would never think of making i mean okay ketchup is one thing yeah. yes we all make ketchup <laughs> but i think i could see people making their brewing their own miso doing their own soy sauce really taking it to that extreme oh yeah i have about six different misos in the fridge and a whole bunch of koji are you starting. and you're right and you're making it is oh it, yeah, yeah my cousin low, makes her own miso. Guy. yeah she's got a whole thing in her basement too yes <laughs> and it's the best miso i've ever had oh yeah so why yeah. not um you can I, that's another thing is you get diversity and you get a really get a very um specific flavor to where you are and i mean if you're making your own miso yeah it's not going to taste like miso you know it's interesting else. the things that you've mentioned so far like uh, uh you know those condiments and right. miso and charcuterie and sausages are all very time consuming you know um and yeah. then, then there was this like big a la minute movement for a long time where it was like fresh fast don't touch it and now you know san francisco's getting chastised every once in a while for putting what was the quote from that New York Times article? Oh, right. Figs on a plate. Right. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, is, is it this slow and low mentality, this DIY, you know, that you actually invest time? 
Um, well, I mean, I think, you know, we're starting to see, I mean, with restaurants with farms on the tops of the gardens, on the, yeah, like, <laughs> not just on the example, top, right above our heads right, right exactly, now. Exactly. Right above our heads right now. Um, and that's, so we're talking low and slow. We're talking really low. We're talking about growing everything and, and, and using it to, you know, you grow the food, you use it, you save seeds, you know, I yeah. mean, you, so that you, you're investing in next year, then you're making the condiments, you're making your jams, you're making your preserves, you're flavoring your oils, you're, you're really doing it all yourself. And I do feel like, so much of it is just wanting to be closer and closer to your food and really wanting it to be an expression of who you are and what you're trying to say. And if you're buying that stuff, if you know, some, it's someone else's expression. It's someone else's idea yeah. and not yours. Well, interesting. Coming for a full circle um, in the kitchen with a good appetite, do you feel like your cookbook's sustainable in that way? Or are you just getting these urges to go out and get these special ingredients? Oh, that's a good question. Yeah, you know, I, I mean, I feel like there's there are the people who are cooking in restaurants and doing all the D, you know, do-it-yourself stuff and um, and certain like really passionate foodies. But I feel like the majority of people are, they just want to cook. Yeah. They just want to get in front and they just don't know how to do it. And as much as I embrace, you know, um, God, I embrace the do-it-yourself movement so much. I care about it so much um, and I support it as much as I can. I'm really speaking to the people who just want to cook. Yeah. And I feel like... Um, and I guess it, that is speaking to everybody too, because even once you make, you know, once you've crafted your own miso, it's like, okay, now what are you going to do? Exactly. <laughs> are you going to put it on duck? What are you yeah, going to do with yeah. it? And um, and what I what I hope my book does is just inspire people to get in the kitchen, cook. Don't follow the recipe. Follow your hunger. You know what? What are you hungry for? And the, go just make it. This is how you do it. Yeah. These are some, this is what I'm hungry for. Maybe you're hungry for the same thing. If not, take my recipe and go to town. Do whatever you. I love it when people write in and say, "Oh, I made this, but I, I didn't have that, so I changed it." <laughs> I'm like, "Hey, you sound like me." Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, I think you put such a give such a wonderful basis to your recipes that you do actually leave that latitude to incorporate new flavors change new things and it's more about you know that repetition of cooking all these things to realize oh i can cook and i can riff on my own and you know it's just not that hard i mean people are scared like i'm a little bit scared i used to be a little bit scared of gardening yeah so i understand why people are scared of cooking because i would i would go i'd have the plants i'd have the pot i'd have the soil and be like what, 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 what do I do? Uh, and, you know, I'd be like, okay, I put the soil in the pot. I put the plant in the soil. But there was this barrier of I'm going to hurt it. I'm yeah. going to do it wrong. And so I understand when people feel that way in the kitchen. Like, oh, my God, I've got the salmon. I've got the, I've got the olive oil. I've got the pan. What do I do? And so, you know, but once you do it, yeah. you just have to do it. And you realize, hey, it's really not that yeah. hard. Well, what was your breakthrough dish? I mean, what got you past the fear of cooking and into, you know, writing? and? Well, you know, for me, I was... I was always a big recipe follower. So I, you know, when I was growing, I cooked, I've always cooked since I was a little kid. I cooked. I, I mean, as, my, as soon as my parents let me touch the stove, I cooked and I followed recipes. And um, I really started experimenting. I mean, for me, it was early just because I had done it so much. And I really started experimenting um, when I was in, I was, you know, in high school, I was, and I, I, for me, it was brownies. I mean, that was yeah. my kind of, I was like, hey, I, I mean, it doesn't, you know, now it doesn't sound like anything like, hey, you can swap out the, you know, walnuts and you can put in, you know, <laughs> chopped up candy bars. Yeah. You know, or for me, it was like, ooh, M&Ms, you know, and it, it, it sounds so like, of course you can, you know, I feel like, but for me, it was a big deal. It was like, yeah. I can make this. I, I really, really want to put chopped up Almond Joys in my brownies because I love Almond Joys. And, and I made it the way I wanted to eat it. And that was so pleasurable. That was, the, that was that moment. And then there was a moment when I was in a restaurant in Soho. I was at the old Provence. And I realized, you know, I was spending my own money. I had just gotten out of college. Yeah. I had a job, a credit card. It's like, I can order three desserts for two people and nobody can stop me. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it was like yeah. this freedom of... 
I can eat the way I want to eat. If I, I want to eat, I like that desserts, as a mantra. Make it how you want to make yeah. it. Eat it how you want to yeah. eat it. Yeah, and that's just you. And you have to. You kind of have to really think about what you want to know that. Yeah. And what do you want right now? Yeah. You you mentioned cherry pie. I mean, oh, what what out of your book pie? are you just dying to make when you go home? Um, well, I don't ever. I never cook anything twice. So, <laughs> I mean, do you really? Um, yeah, I mean, it's very funny. I think I cook things tons and tons of times to tweak it, make it better, make it more But don't you change specific. it just a little bit each time? Very little. I try to standardize more oh, than I try. I mean, I experiment a lot, but I also like try to... Right, then to, you try to perfect. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's a different tendency. I know that urge. That's really cool. I yeah. wish I had that. I tend to... I, I get it good enough, and then I'm like, let's go yeah. this way, you know? Yeah, I have my signature dishes, so... Yeah, uh, the, yeah. That's, that's, that's great. Yeah. Because you know that when you go to your house, it's going to be great. But for me, when people come over to my house, it's usually pretty good. <laughs> they but never it's not. know what they're going to get. And my friends always say, they're like, can you make that dish you used to make? Uh, no, I guess you can't, can you? Okay, never mind. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so that just leads me to believe, if you ever go over to Melissa's uh, house to eat, don't expect to come back and have the same wonderful dish twice, but you can make it yourself. You can make it how right. you want it. Exactly. You when be like you want that it. salad you made with the cranberries and the pine nuts. I'm going to go home and I'm going to make it with mang- dried mango. And see, I'm starving now. Absolutely <laughs> starving. Luckily, there are some wonderful pizzas waiting for us inside Roberto's, and uh, that's all the time we have for today. And I'm just absolutely salivating and. Yeah, I need some water, too, because I'm, we've been talking about food so much, I forget how... I know, how don't you feel like you've just eaten a whole thing of popcorn with salt on it? Ooh, now I, uh, <laughs> now I want that, too. Yeah, see, now if only Truffle I can salt. just... Even better. Now if I could just visualize these things and make it actually feel full sometimes, <laughs> then I won't have to spend any money at uh, you know these shops. Um, you're listening to the food scene. This is Michael Harlan Turkel. Thank you so much again to our sponsor, Brooklyn Bowl engineer Nat Wiener and uh, Jack Inslee. We are going to be live Tuesdays at 3 p.m., so give us a call sometime. Looking forward to hearing from you. And uh, this is Michael Harlan Turkel. You're listening to The Food Scene on Heritage Radio Network. Thank you, Melissa. Thank you.